welcome to the D-Hud Bobcast. I'm Leland Steele. And I'm Moby. And I'm Jeremy. Yes, listener, after a couple months of just Leland and I doing our boring duo thing, we have brought back another guest. And we're very happy to have Jeremy here today because Jeremy is a board game designer. And as you know, especially through COVID, the Crazy Boat Cardboard segment has been uh, atrophied a little bit there. So Jeremy, (laughs) thanks so much for joining us. Um, Full disclosure, we don't actually know anything about the board games that you design and your experiences, but that's part of the fun because we're going to learn, right? Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Uh, We hope you have a lot of fun on it. You know, like, like I said, without pretension, um, a lot of our guest hosts over the past, I guess, two and a half years, we've been having them uh, have a, a lot of fun on the show and, and a lot of them want to come back. And, you know, we're just happy to have some new blood introduced. We've we've had several of our triple, trown, tr- triple crowns on recently, our multiple time returning guests. So great to have you here. And uh yeah, I guess uh, to start it off, we'll we'll roll into the banter segment. Uh, Leland, let's uh, let's give the wheel a start with you. Do you have anything you want to discuss? Okay, I got one piece, and the uh, finalist for the newest entrance into the National Toy Hall of Fame for 2021 came out. I think earlier this week. Three being entered are American Girl dolls, which if you're not familiar, they're uh, it's pretty well, you would probably know them if you saw them, but it's like a doll that is, they're also, they're off, their clothing's often like era of set piece and they come in a variety of like skin tones and that kind of stuff. Um, I think you'd probably recognize them if you, if you saw them and they've been featured in some like, you know, like TV shows. I don't know. Uh, but sand. So <laughs> that's great. Cause sand's the easiest, uh, toy to find, I suppose. I don't know. And then the third is Risk. Beating out a few, there's a long list of actual nominees to get in, but uh, a few of them that these three beat out were Billiards, uh, The Pinata, Battleship, and Settlers of Catan was beat out this year. Wow. So they only, they only add like a certain number of these toys per year, and then once they're on the list, they're on the list? Or? I think so. Yeah, yeah. So they, they these three join the ranks of past entrances uh, like Rubber Duck, Playing Cards, the Atari 2600, and Stick. So very, wow. very weird. <laughs> they're all over the place, it seems. So now Sand is on the list, but Billiards is not. That's right. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I don't know if they can be re-entered. I, I don't know, but I don't really know what the, the criteria for submitting them by the judges or who actually does judge. I have no clue. But every year I just hear these fucking nominees and the entrances, and it's always, it's always so weird. I would love to know who's on this panel. Like if there's like a <laughs> celebrity guest on the panel or something like that. Somebody making some weird choices. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just thinking of, I think his name is Klaus Tubert, who did, developed uh, Settlers of Catan. Like, you know, hero of college kids everywhere for the past 15 years. Like rolling over in his grave. Well, I guess he's probably not dead yet. But like he's still sand. Sand. Like... In a metaphorical sense, I get it. We've all played with sand on the beach, but or in like a sandbox. But as a toy, I just think that's a stretch. That's a pretty loose definition. Well, I mean, yeah. as the designer of of uh, Settlers of Katana, I wouldn't be surprised if, like, to him, sand and 
risk are kind of on the same level even like it's like how can you have risk on there and not settlers of Catan? Right, yeah exactly. it doesn't make any sense that is true i remember as a kid like i'm a huge axis and allies fan you don't know that jeremy but i remember as a kid like thinking that risk was such a cool advanced war game not anymore yeah it's just That's- dice just roll it's some just dice. Dice. Let's roll yeah. dice because I got more of these things that mean I get to roll more dice versus your less dice. Yep. And there, I have the Yukon territory. <laughs> That's <laughs> literally what you do in Axis and Allies, except you just have more dice. <laughs> That's the same okay. No, no, thing. no. Yes, it is. Okay, no. yeah, you, you want to roll a certain below a certain pit value, but it's the same fucking thing. There's strategic <laughs> bombing, there's AA guns. Okay, yes. There's, there's more to it. But it's you, <laughs> there's still you got to start somewhere. So you got to give Risk the credit that it deserves, because like many things, like the standard deck of playing cards, so many things come out of it, right? Like yeah, it's, it's where it starts, and then now we are able to grow from the the foundations that have been set. So I don't know. I think what do you fine. think, Jeremy? Risk like give it the gladi- gladiatorial like emperor thumb up or thumb down risk like in terms of it being on the national like the international like toys hall of fame yeah oh like i really hate to 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 let it get on there in, in lieu of of settlers of Catan, but i i gotta go with i gotta i gotta go with leland on this and say that it, like i think that it, it does have a place there just in terms of like the history of toys i mean i actually probably wouldn't have gotten into board game design myself if it weren't for risk wow okay wow see yeah not not that i'm a huge fan of risk but it's just like sure it's a common game i mean it's it's a lot better than some other classic games that's you know to say say the least and uh yeah actually the first game that i started designing was kind of like inspired a little bit by risk just by war games like i wanted to do a war game but the only one that i was aware of at that time like way way back you know 12 years ago or whatever was risk so right. you could say that it was like inspired by risk. There we okay. go. See, they That's know what they're cool. doing. The, those judges at the Toy Hall of Fame know what they're doing. <laughs> I can't argue with that. I was half expecting you to say, you know, it was sand. One day I built a castle with sand and I was like, castle the board game. I have to make this out of castle. <laughs> I actually I know a guy who's, who's working on a, a sand castle's board game it's pretty oh, it's, cool it's a pretty neat concept i think yeah it's like you wouldn't think that something like that would work but hey you know you can make oh, a board game out of anything yeah there's days. yeah you could find it literally any theme that you're interested in, you're gonna be able to find a board game that's based around it for sure especially especially in the last like five years absolutely fuck me am i in the twilight zone like i can't believe jeremy just said this <laughs> a guy is making a sandcastle board game it's like why not you know yeah, no, it's it's pretty it's pretty legit. There's like waves that come and like knock your your shit down, and you have to rebuild it. Or there's like a there's like random events, or like there's a baby that will like tromp on through and like destroy <laughs> sections of, and like everybody everybody's kind of contributing to this one big castle. But you get points for having like the biggest, the tallest section or whatever. Like, it's very well thought out. It's like you put oh my a goodness, bunch of time that sounds it. amazing. Yeah, it sounds great. Yeah, it's that cool actually. actually. It is really it. cool. <laughs> Wow, now I want to play the Sandcastle. There you go. Great. <laughs> and be, that's it. That's all I got. That's that's mine. Okay, Jeremy, do you happen to have uh, any banter that you brought t- today? Or 
Yeah, I don't have anything in particular. I mean, if I spent a bit of time thinking about it, I probably could come up with something. But you were saying that this is sort of like a impromptu if you've got something cool. Totally. So. Yeah, I got two. Um, the first one is I almost hesitate to bring it up because I got this email last week from eBay. And it was about the change of terms to bidding on trading cards, which is relevant here because Leland and I are into Magic the Gathering. I, I got into trading card games through Pokemon, which has come back in popularity again. And what it is, the reason why I hesitated bringing it up, it's not like I don't want to talk about it, but it, when I tried to research it, apparently this rule was changed like this last June. Um, I don't know why I got the email now. Maybe something's changed. But apparently they were having a huge issue with bidders purposefully bidding up trading cards like they could have been from other companies that sell trading cards but they had an account where they made a dummy account and they bid up certain trading cards and then withdraw their bids so that you know it would appear that this card was about to sell for a much higher amount than it actually sold for and it was inflating prices across you know, trading card games, and you know, where decent magic cards, for example, regularly sell for $20, $50 and much, much higher for the earlier ones. Same goes for older, rare, you know, first edition Pokemon cards. I, I think it makes a lot of sense. So what eBay changed is that you cannot withdraw a bid without the uh, seller's permission. So if Leland and I were to bid on a card that Jeremy has, we cannot withdraw our bids without Jeremy being like, okay, fine, I'll be a nice guy. You can withdraw your bids. And so if you win, you don't pay, your account gets heavily penalized. Hmm. I actually didn't know you could withdraw bids. <laughs> I just thought, you know, you're bidding. Well, how, how can you take that away? It sounds like we got a, uh, maybe Wada is uh, branching out into <laughs> playing cards. <laughs> that's nuts. I mean, that's a good change. That makes sense, right? Like, you have to protect the sellers as as much as the buyers need protection. Sort of the sellers, right? Can can people still work around that though? If they want to, like, if somebody wanted to uh, artificially inflate the price of cards that they were selling, could they not create accounts to the bid sales. on their own items with, right. and then ditch out because they, they have control of both? This, yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I just want to throw that out there. Um, the second piece of the second thing I want to bring up, have either of you guys seen the Book of Boba Fett trailer that came out a few days ago? No. Or no. That? Jeremy, I sh well, we're just getting to know each other, but are you a Star Wars guy by any chance? Like, did you see The Mandalorian? I have seen The Mandalorian, yeah. I don't know if I would say that I'm, like, specifically a Star Wars guy, because I don't think that I've, like, earned that title relative to, like, the friends that I have that I would call Star Wars guys. <laughs> but I, okay. but I, I, I don't mind me some Star Wars, yeah. Yeah, I, I think if you enjoyed The Mandalorian, it, it would be worth a watch if you wanted to go to YouTube later and look it up. It, they're going with a unique angle to it, which is they're trying to make like a, I don't want to say like a Sopranos-style crime drama, but definitely like a crime mafia sort of drama where Boba Fett basically says, he says in the trailer, I'm not a bounty hunter. He doesn't see himself as a bounty hunter anymore but he's trying to build up a crime syndicate by reuniting all these small gangs into like one giant gang. And it's actually going to be important in the overall story because where what the Mandalorian has seeded 
through that episode with Ahsoka Tano is that Grand Admiral Thrawn, who's basically the biggest baddie next to the Emperor and Darth Vader, he just hasn't yet been in a live-action Star Wars show or movie, is coming down the pipe. And they've reintroduced, even though it's Disney, Grand Admiral Thrawn, because he basically invades the galaxy. He's the super cool, badass, former Imperial commander. And uh, one of the things that happens in the story is that uh, a bunch of criminals and smugglers unite to help hold back Thrawn. He doesn't expect that criminals and smugglers will help the New Republic fight him off. So I people think that that's where Book of Boba Fett is building to, is this overall Avengers Endgame style show that's going to be called like Thrawn or something, where the Mandalorian and the New Republic and maybe like the remnants of the Empire, like everybody has to fight Thrawn at some point. So you think that's why they're they're making like 13 new shows or whatever it is? <laughs> <laughs> well, not not all of the shows, because some of the shows are time defined, like the Kenobi show is specifically Kenobi between Star Wars Episode 3 right. and Episode 4, which is a long period. So yeah, some yeah. of those shows are defined. But like Ahsoka Tano, I think she's getting her own show. That's definitely going to be Thrawn focused. I can tell you that. Yeah, for sure. 100%. Some of the shows like Bad Batch, I think that takes place during the Clone Wars. I haven't seen it, but. It takes place directly after Order 66. Okay. Well, there you go. Order 66. You sure know a lot about like Star Wars for somebody who doesn't like Star Wars. Yeah, well, I do. <laughs> So, so yes, that's fair point because I've, I've watched a lot of, I've watched like most of it. I've watched most of the Bad Batch. I just recently went through all the, the, the Clone Wars, uh, the animated Clone Wars. And, um, and I've watched most of Rebels too, which heavily features Thrawn. So Thrawn is a badass. So I'm, Thrawn's cool. That's dope that, that we'll get to see him and I hope they do him justice. Um, I don't, I don't think that or I'm not worried that they won't serve the character justice is like they've done pretty well with their live action stuff up until now. Right. Like, and Mandalorian's dope. Like Mandalorian is like the best of star Wars by far. Yeah. I would agree with that yeah. actually. Mostly because there's no force because the force is stupid. And that's why star Wars is <laughs> dumb. Because <laughs> the force ah, is dumb. That's why you don't like star Wars. The force, the force is cool, but the way the force is utilized as a plot device in every movie is stupid all the time yeah it's yeah hate it that's why rogue one is the worst star wars ever of anything but rogue one sucks i thought rogue one has like the least force though yeah it's like not really about that rogue one specifically reinforces that force acts as a fate system which is i think stupid okay Really, yeah, I guess. Like, what's what's the point of them like fighting or doing anything like will willful with themselves if yeah. there's just this force that's forcing them around? What's the point of having uh, an a, an antagonist if you can just march across a field because you're fated to do so to to hit the activation button on the thing you need to do? What's the point of it? I don't. It pulls out any of the 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 intensity of it for me. Like the tension, it kills it for me. I drives me crazy. Hmm. But telekinesis okay. is rad. So yeah. and so are lightsabers. Yeah, so what do you I guess you take the good with the bad. I don't know. <laughs> and like throw yeah, throwing people telekinesis, right. the mind control, the force lightning if you're dark side. Also, stuff. nobody ever uses the force in the way they're supposed to. 
every single time. How how do people run away from Jedi? It doesn't make sense. Literally, stop running, Jedi, and pick the fucker up with the Force. Like, nobody should be able to <laughs> run away from a Jedi. It makes no fucking sense. But when they need to catch somebody that's falling with the Force, they can do it because they got to save. So, <laughs> no well, sense. Well, that's, that's the thing. is The, the Force is, is, a, is a dramatic device. It's ah. not <laughs> a, a device of making sense. You know, like it's... Yeah, that, that's one of the things that's always gotten me about it, too. There's lots of little things in Star Wars. Like, this decision doesn't make sense. The fact that they didn't do that right there doesn't make sense. Yeah. It's like, you can, you, you gotta, yeah, if you want to want to enjoy it at all, you kind of have to, like, be willing to play a little bit dumb and let go of some of that. Yeah, you really gotta suspend some some belief there, uh, for sure. <laughs> for sure. Or, or just understand that, like, well, it's not really meant to make that much. Like, it's it's a story. It's kind of for kids. It's like a fairy tale. It's like... It would be like getting upset about stuff not making sense in Shrek, you know? Nobody gets upset about that. The thing about sci-fi, though, is that people like expect it to be like, you know, a little bit more scientific, a little bit more like, oh, this makes some sense. But not everything can be the expense. So. Yeah, I guess Star Wars is like, it's, it is fantasy in space. It's, it's, it is just space magic, I guess, so... That's a that's a good point, but I still I mean, I've been able to get over it long enough to watch a lot of Star Wars content. So, all of it in fact. So, I guess I I guess I like it. I don't know. You like it enough know. to watch it. Exactly. As a fan of the Expanse, I cannot let Jeremy's like comment that he just go, you know, go without reinforcement cuz the Expanse is an excellent show. Um, I've only seen season one so far. I watch it with a group of friends on watch party and it's really hard to get us together. So we've only been, we've only just got through season one. Um, but I really like it. Rest in peace, Doniger. You were the coolest ship ever. Yeah. Those poor people. Those okay. poor pe- they'll, oh. they'll, they'll get their, they'll get their, their like just desserts, you know, there's, there's more to come, it, you know, there, there'll be justice. Leland, I think you'd like The Expanse. Oh, I'm I mean, sure I would, yeah. There's terrible shit that I know you've watched. See, see, Leland will be like, yeah, have you ever seen, uh, Jeremy, have you ever seen uh, that old Star Trek Generations, a movie from like 1996 that Nix's... Um, yeah, I think in like 1996 program. I saw it. <laughs> 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 part where Data, Data the robot, he gets the emotion chip and he goes and he has a drink of alcohol and he goes... I hate this. I really hate this. And the bartender goes, do you want more? And he goes, please. And that's Leland with TV shows that he hates. He's like, I hate this. I really hate this. Will you finish the series? Please. I'm not, I'm getting better on that. I'm getting less tolerant of that stuff. I don't have the time anymore. You don't have the time to watch stuff that's complete shit. That's why I didn't watch, I didn't finish second season of You because that show went severely downhill. And what else have I stopped in the middle of? I can't even think of anything else. Maybe there isn't anything else. But that, that's the one show that I will not finish because that show is fucking garbage. You is terrible. Is that the show about the actually. stalker guy yeah. who like yeah. meets the girl? Okay, I was into. I was. That's on my watch list. I was about to watch that. So if you tell me the second season goes to shit, I won't try it. Yeah, it lost. It lost me in second season. I, I mean, season one might be worth watching. Apparently, season three. Uh, he gets married to another psycho girl, so another like killer girl or something. So that's a different dynamic that 
might be worth getting to. I don't know. This this is this is hitting way too close to home with my previous relationship to my current. So I don't know. Like literally, I I don't know if I could handle that. <laughs> so yeah, I I had my own run in with my yeah. You need some escapism. You don't you don't need anything. From... I don't need to. I don't need flashbacks presented to me in forty five minute binge worthy episodes. Uh, everybody thinks that their ex girlfriend's a psycho. That's true. It's that, normal. It's yeah, normal. That's true. Everybody does. <laughs> Sometimes they're correct, though. That's that's, that's true. That's, that's true. The thing. So, not to put too fine a point on it, but um, that's that's all I've got for banter. Um, so I think since that seals off banter, Leland, if you want to lead into your crazy about cardboard, yeah, it's good to say that. I really do like saying that. So. I mean, this is the feature segment for you, Jeremy, here. I mean, you, we brought you on to, to pick your brain about design and, you know, fair, I mean, you alluded to, to being influenced uh, by risk and to design itself. But how exactly did you get into thinking you wanted to design board games? Yeah, well, actually, my, my story is like a little bit a little bit backwards compared to a lot of other designers that I know of. Like I, I read this book that was like, basically a series of interviews with like a whole whack ton of well-known designers. And, you know, a lot of them had like the same kind of backstory as to how they got into it or like a similar one about like, you know, either Catan or some like really great game they got into when they were a kid and continued to play lots and lots of all these games until like their teens and whatever, maybe their twenties. And then like after playing all these games decided that they wanted to, you know, actually design one. Uh, for me, it was actually kind of the opposite where um, I wasn't, I was kind of into games as a kid. I wasn't like super big into games, actually. Like I played more video games than board games. And then when I was working at a print shop, I was working at like a, like a, a big print, like central print center for Staples, where they like all these jobs from all over the, the uh, province come to. And I was in the wide format department and we would get all these, these print jobs from people like printing out like D and D maps or, you know, like things that looked like they were prototypes for games and, and this kind of thing. And, uh, I mean, yeah, I just kind of thought that it would be a way to make work more interesting to like, Oh, you know, like if I have some kind of cool creative project that I have these resources that I am able to use and I start using them, then, you know, like I'll just like feel better about working at Staples, which is a, in a corporate nightmare. <laughs> So yeah, I got, I got together with some buddies and we uh, came up with an idea for like, like I said, it was kind of like risk, but a little bit more combined with like a Starcraft kind of thing. And it, it ended up being like a, a, an emulation of a real time strategy game. Like if you can imagine that. Yeah. That's cool. That's yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So that was my, that was the first design I started working on, which is still like, I, it's on the back burner. It has been for quite some time. I haven't, haven't finished it, but I haven't given up on it either, but I started doing that and in the first like two or three years of me and my buddy working on this like on a weekly basis, you know, we learned a lot about what does and doesn't work, what is and isn't fun. Um, and then, you know, immediately realized that like we needed to start playing more like designer games that were that were current and that were coming out now, like to sort of just get ourselves up to date on what you know what design principles are, are currently you know relevant in the marketplace and that kind of thing because it's not like you can't you can't redesign snake or snakes and ladders sorry you can't redesign snakes and ladders and and expect to be able to put that on shelves it doesn't work anymore 
Um, so like all of the, the gaming experience that I had had as a child playing just like Monopoly and Mastermind and Battleship and whatever, kind of a little bit irrelevant. Um, if I wanted to make something, you know, that was like more, had more meat to it. Uh, so yeah, so we just started playing more games then. Uh, you know, we got into like, got really into Zombicide for a while, uh, different versions of Catan. And yeah, I just sort of started my own collection. And then, you know, over, you know, like, like five years later, now I have like, I don't know, close to a hundred games or something like that in my collection. But so a lot of designers still have a lot, like have a lot more and have played a lot more. Like I know that um, my level of experience, I'm aware that my level of experience as a gamer um, for somebody who's, who's personally invested in designing is actually uh, quite low. And I have to like be mindful of that, you know? And like, I, one of the things that's great about, about design though is that it's very collaborative. So you get a lot of input and um, feedback from, from people, like other people in the industry. And that's how I've learned, learned a lot um, is, is from those people. But yeah, I, like I just got into it. I got into playing games through designing games, sort of. Interesting. And then, yeah, and then now I like just I love them both. Right, right, right. Well, I think uh, that what you described as like the the almost generic story of designers is like ninety nine percent of the people in the hobby, or like that they want to be. Like, everybody that plays board games wants to design a board game right like <laughs> they all they, they fall in love with the hobby they're like wow this i love this collection of mechanisms and this and what if we put them together and like everyone's always brainstorming right and i yep. guess it's the, the the select few that are able to to actually drive forward with it and uh obviously the advent of kickstarter has helped a lot of people i mean why don't you tell us about uh wizard thieves yeah, so that that was a pretty pretty small project for sure. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't ever meant to be like a mega mega project on Kickstarter or anything like that. I mean, first of all, there's very few Kickstarters these days that are run by a single individual. Most right. of them are, you know, run by teams or like if they're if like like whenever you see a Kickstarter campaign for a board game that's like <clears throat> making hundreds of thousands or even millions of dollars, uh, you know, you you can you can be pretty much guaranteed that that project comes from like a long-standing uh, reputation that that either a company or an individual or a group of people has, uh, because you know, like, the, like it's usually by the time you've done like your tenth campaign or something, that's when maybe you start hitting the, you know, five hundred thousand dollar mark or whatever. Yep. Yep. Um. So so for me, it was just like I just want to be able to to put this thing out. Basically, I'm I'm a big fan of a classic card game called Egyptian Rat Screw. You may have heard of it. May not, maybe not have, but. It's uh, it's it's a pretty fun classic card game, but there was very obvious glaring problems with it that I did not like, and I just kind of wanted to add some things, change some of like how that design is. Obviously, like change like I made the cards square instead of like standard cards so that they're easier to kind of like butt up together when you're grabbing cards and this kind of thing. Um, just like little like little modifications like that, but there was a number of them, and so I I ended up originally just making a prototype or making like it wasn't even like a thing that I was necessarily going to try to publish I just had built this version of this classic card game for me and my friends who have played that original game to enjoy with each other um and I just slapped on like a fantasy theme to it and the the more we played it the more it was like no this is like a an actual improvement on this and this is so much fun and you know like people kept telling me that I should like seriously consider putting it out so I kept on working on the prototype and working on the art and the design, the graphic design, and slowly it became like more of a, like a little bit more of a robust theme. 
and just uh, obviously better art, better better everything. And uh, yeah, just I eventually hit a point where I was like, okay, I think I think I could actually do this. So I reached out to a, a, a manufacturer and like, I don't run a publishing company or anything. I didn't, this wasn't like a, a long-term business plan for me. This was just like a one-off. I don't think that, you know, anybody is going to want to pick this game up necessarily because it's, it's like, it's similar to other uh, speed games and speed games aren't overly popular anyways, but I just wanted people who like Egyptian Rat Screw to have access to this. So, um, so yeah, I put together the campaign and um, it was fairly fairly successful enough that i was able to to put the game out and not lose money so that was good <laughs> yeah right. well yeah i mean you more than doubled your uh goal uh which i mean it's fantastic congratulations well, that was in 2019 right and i think yeah, i i uh, was looking at the page and looking at some of the comments i think delivery was coming in like beginning of 2020 so like how much of the you know the covid logistics problems that we're still experiencing did you encounter with that if if any uh yeah i got pretty lucky on that front i guess now that i think about it because i i finished everything up like fairly well before that all that all became an issue like i was actually so the campaign was in 2019 and then the game release or that we had like the release party uh in october of 2019 so just near the end there and that was when local backers all got their copies nice because the hand delivery was faster right. uh and then i think it was I think it was like maybe by the end of 2019 or yeah, maybe like there was some, yeah, there was some that was like early 2020. Some of the mailings were still to be done. There were some issues with like logistical issues with the manufacturer because they were also helping me with fulfillment. They just like bubble, bubble mailer packed all these individual copies and sent them around the world for me. So I didn't have to deal with a, a third party uh, fulfillment company, which was oh, nice. That's awesome. But, but they were, yeah, it was great, but they were also pretty new to it. And there was some significant issues that occurred that slowed things down a bit. But we got over it and got everything out. But I, by I think February, like everybody had their game. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. You did just miss it then, holy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's great. I mean, congratulations. That's that's awesome. I mean, that's what. See, that's exactly what Kickstarter is supposed to be for. Like when you you're alluding to like you know like come on games doing, see like, on games, come on games, whatever the fuck their name is now. Literally, <laughs> they'll put anything on Kickstarter, and they just have like this rabid fan base that will back anything they put on there and they'll make a million plus dollars using this platform as a pre-order service. They do not need yep. to use it. It's bullshit. They, sh they, yeah, sh they haven't needed to use it for years. I mean, literally since fucking the second printing of Zombicide, they don't need to use Kickstarter. There's, I, uh, yeah, it drives me, it just drives me fucking crazy, which is why I like, I don't even look at Kickstarter anymore because I'm so disenfranchised on it. I, I, I don't know. I'm, it's nice to hear an actual success story with a platform that's supposed to be fucking the way it's supposed to be used. I I really <laughs> I'm so glad that we get to hear this story because it restores a little bit of faith in what you know the inceptors of Kickstarter wanted to do, and it's doing it. At least it's doing it somewhere for somebody. <laughs> there are a few of us. There's you know, there's some smaller <laughs> publishers and stuff like that that are. That they still need it and they're able to use it. So yeah, that's great. And and you're the guys we're trying to find, or the people that we're trying to find. I mean, Leland and I were were both bit years ago on the Evil Dead Two. Is it Evil Dead Two or just Evil Dead board? Evil game? Dead Two, yeah. Evil Evil Dead Two board game, where 
Uh, it was Leland who brought it up and he said, hey, Moby, you know, I, I know you don't have a lot of games, but you love Evil Dead. So, you know, I said, yeah, absolutely. And dove in for a deluxe package for the game. And Leland went for it as well. And we could tell something was going horrifically wrong with the updates. They just were vague and they were just complaining. We were even joking meme about manufacturer, this like big boogeyman in China who was their manufacturer but something just didn't add up and sooner or later like the updates became less and less more and more vague and finally there were no updates and it turned out like we were all scammed and it was it was a horrible feeling it 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 was it made someone like myself really lose faith in the kickstarter platform because we were already running into a lot of those big corporate you know, companies that were kickstarting stuff that honestly they had no business kickstarting. Like they were going to get a lot of money um, anyways, like, like we're talking about now they just get massively funded and you just kind of lose faith in the whole process. Now, luckily in the case of the evil dead two game, another company got the rights. They actually gave everyone who was supposed to, who originally backed a, a game. I've got it. We haven't played it yet, but it looks great. It's in my shelf. So that ended up having a happy ending, but you are the kind of people that, you know, we want to support there. And so a question from my end, Jeremy, is how do we find developers such as yourself? Is there a, a website we can go through or a way we can look on Kickstarter to identify indie developers such as yourself? Uh, yeah, kind of. I mean, there's no, there's no like, uh, just you know, indie Kickstarter projects.com or anything like that, um, that, that I'm aware of. Uh, but there is, I don't know if you guys like provide links or anything like that in the descriptions of your, of your casts or whatever, but there is a, uh, a board game geek geek list that is, it's been going for years and years. It's, it's run by a different guy now than it used to be, but it's basically a, a Kickstarter projects geek list, um, that it, like it lists everything that's, that's currently on on kickstarter and like it, it'll tell you whether the the campaign there's a little icon that tells you whether the campaign is funded or not but it's just like i'm looking at it right now yeah there's like a list of like 100 games here that are all on kickstarter right now so it's it's from what i understand i'm pretty sure like it's exhaustive it's everything everything that is that is currently on will always be listed in this in this like little little list database type thing Yes, we have show notes for sure, like almost every single episode. And I'm pretty sure Leland was given the video, was just uh, writing that down. So I think that's fantastic because um, honestly, like our, our listeners, the people that listen to us, want to support people like you as well. And, you know, I, I think Kickstarter can be a great tool to bring indie developer like, like yourself, bring this game to fruition, which otherwise might be very difficult it's just you kind of have to sift through the the corporate stuff and the scams and the muck to get to you guys so that link you gave i think is fantastic i'm definitely gonna look into it yeah yeah it's i, I think uh, like as anybody anybody who is sort of like relatively involved in the kickstarter community having run a campaign themselves that kind of thing like i'm pretty sure that most of those those people at least in the board game industry there's a lot of, a lot of other stuff on kickstarter as well but it's actually funny. The board games that are sold on Kickstarter bring in, I think, the the most revenue out of like any type of project on Kickstarter now. Yeah, but yeah, crazy. so there, this yeah, it's nuts. But uh, this this list is something that is like 
I've fairly well known about and it's, you know, like a lot of people track it. So I don't think it's going anywhere. I'm pretty sure it's going to be around. And it is kind of like, I wish there was a, another way where you could go to Kickstarter and they promoted projects that like, they didn't promote my project for shit, right? Like it's like a small oh, yeah. dinky little, like they're not going to put their projects we love tag on something that has made $3,000. They're going to put their projects we love tag on Marvel Dice Throne, right? <laughs> yeah. Which is a really cool game. You know, by Rocks the Games, this is a big company. They're very successful, and like I don't know. And there, and there actually, there is somewhat of an argument to be made for for relatively large companies still not needing Kickstarter, but because they started on Kickstarter, it being like where their following is, just like the best way for them to be able to make a project like as successful as it can be. Um, and because they're not being prevented from doing so, like I'm sure that they would be able to find another way if Kickstarter came around and was like, now. No, no. And anybody who's on here that has, you know, like if, the, if your company has provably brought in like a million dollars in a year or something like that, like once you get to a certain size, no more Kickstarter campaigns for you. Right. I'm sure these companies would still be fine. But um, yeah, I don't know. It is, there's a, like a moral gray area there for sure. Like I definitely not like a huge supporter of like massive companies, you know, just like pumping it. Like you say, Simon especially, like, they could literally like they could they could take a picture of shit on a stick and put it on Kickstarter and be like, this is what we're gonna make for you. <laughs> exactly. And comes with minis. And people would be like, oh yeah, look at look at the look at the miniature shit. It's so nice. You know, <laughs> exactly. Look at the grain on that lump of turd. Like exactly. <laughs> it's so detailed. <laughs> oh look, they even use brown plastic. Such attention to detail. Yeah. You know, wood. Uh, brown at, wood, actual. At the wood. end of the day, though, yeah, fucking, I don't know, like. That Evil Dead 2, part of the problem with that, and part of the the reason that the president of Space Go Game Productions, Sean Burry, could get away with taking everyone's money, is because Kickstarter, at the time, let them run concurrent uh, uh, projects, uh, or very close to being concurrent, because they were just Ponzi scheming it, and they were funding the production of their previous project with the funds they were making on the one they were running immediately after. So obviously the money's going to fucking run out and nobody's going to get their shit because by the time they get the end of that scheme, there's going to be nothing left, right? So I don't know. It's it's a huge part of the problem. And that was a number of years ago. I think mean, the platform itself has come a long way. Uh, I, I don't believe you can run concurrent projects anymore and haven't been able to for a number of years. Uh, so I don't know what else they're doing, if anything. But yeah, obviously, they'd be very sad if Simon Games decided to discontinue using Kickstarter and your point about it being this own little social media for some of these companies is, is incredibly valid. And yeah, you got to go where the, where the audience is. I mean, you can't, I, I guess you can't blame them, but it's all just, everyone just wants to get their piece of the pie and Kickstarter allows some of these companies to have the biggest pie, I guess. Right. Like, yeah. Yeah. The, the sad part of it is that like with that, there's so many really cool products. Like I, I still, you know, go on Kickstarter and check out what's new on there. And I like, I like a lot of the stuff that I see on there and it's cool to see some of these big projects, you know, like I was excited for the Marvel Dice Throne, for example, it was one of the ones I was like really looking forward to just cause I love Dice Throne and Marvel. Um, right. But, uh, <laughs> but it's still like, yeah, it, it it's, yeah, it, it just like kind of irks me a little bit still, you know, it's just like, man, I know, I, I guess almost like a guilty pleasure. It's like, I know, I know that the fact that these like massive campaigns exist and that there are so many of them, 
Um, you know, there's probably there's probably like seven or eight really popular Kickstarter campaigns right now, and like those are the ones that are going to get like ninety percent of all of the attention, yeah. like of all of all the the audience that is on Kickstarter looking at games right now, and then and and anybody who who is like just a first time creator, especially, or you know, just has like a smaller project that they know is going to be smaller and they're still doing it anyways because of their love of games. And it's not really like a, we're trying to run a big company and pay everybody's wage sort of deal. It's just, I want to, I, w- I literally just want to see this game exist. Those, those companies or those people, those groups are going to get ignored or like more so ignored anyways. And that's a little, a little sad to me, right? Cause it's just like, well, I mean, when I've been in that position, you know, like I've seen, I, like, and I was pretty satisfied with the, the, level of success of my campaign because it's just a small box card game little like $20 project like those don't usually sell that much on Kickstarter anyways but um you know like I I've, I've definitely seen some campaigns on there where I'm just like man this is this is actually pretty cool like I don't I don't really understand why this is like one one company that I think puts out some pretty cool uh games just in general and they've been doing it for a little while they got have like a number of titles now that doesn't get as as much attention as as I feel they should is uh, Talent Strikes games. Mm-hmm. They um the, their their most recent campaign I think was Night Market, which is like it's about like an Asian night market, and they did like a bunch of you know cultural research to try to emulate this you know this like uh, scene and this you know this kind of experience of going through a night market and whatever. And it's like a Euro game though, and it's it's cool and it got like Public Market was before that. That's a really cool game. I've played it. Really fun. And and their campaigns are like, you know, just it's it's like just enough for them to they're keeping the business running, but it's, you know, they you got to wonder if if these other like massive campaigns weren't weren't around, like if if Dice Throne and or if like Simon's like Ankh when that came out, whatever, if Ankh had just like sold their shit in stores and let the Kickstarter traffic get directed to other things, would these other smaller companies be able to, you know, do do better for themselves and, you know. I feel like maybe maybe more of them would still be around. Cause there are there are a number of of Kickstarter not Kickstarter uh, a number of board game uh, publishing companies that have had to just you know let go of their dream because their Kickstarter campaigns don't don't succeed um, sometimes multiple times or whatever and then like that's it we don't have money so what can we do? Yeah, yeah. That's uh, yeah. If there would be like this passive trickle down if they just weren't there. I just it still just boggles my mind that I mean. What is the percentage that Kickstarter takes from projects? Like ten percent or whatever it is. One, to, if it's one to ten percent, how Simon Games cannot afford to implement their own pre-order system for less than one to ten percent of the projects of their fucking projects. Like it boggles my mind. I just I don't get it. I just don't understand it. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, ten percent of two yeah. million bucks. You can't make your own fucking online pre-order system. <laughs> And I have no idea. It's so, I feel it's, like they, maybe they have contracts. Oh, well, yeah, yeah, possibly. And it's so like antithetical you know? too, because the bigger projects are for sure going to be available in the box or in the stores in, in big, in, yeah. right. And of course it comes down to exclusives and everyone loves their exclusives. And that is like also how Kickstarter It's also Kickstarter's platform is like Kickstarter exclusives. Right. But yeah, the thing about that though is like so the thing that about uh, Kickstarter that I think is starting to to make me feel a little bit more jaded about it or just like not as in, like I haven't really been backing projects much uh lately uh like since uh like I was I was camping all summer. It feels like something happened over the summer. I don't know. I was away 
I came back into town, you know, I kind of got back in the back onto the train of my board game design groups and like doing all my board game stuff and started looking at Kickstarters again. And when I when I started looking at Kickstarters again, for whatever reason, it seemed it feels to me like since around like August, a lot of the campaigns are a like so freaking expensive where, you know, like you're, you're looking at like one hundred and twenty dollars US sometimes, you know, like hundred and hundred and twenty dollars or whatever for a game that may not even like have that much stuff in it. You know, like, it's not like, like, I, like, I feel like back in the day, you know, like Zombicide came with like all these minis and whatever else. And it was like, Hey, you're back in the Kickstarter campaign, you know, as a thank you, you know, we're giving you like 30% off or some ridiculous discount where it's like, you know, it's like 50 bucks or 60 bucks or something. And now, you know, like a lot of these campaigns are just, yeah, just like crazy expensive for what you're getting. And the, the, the exclusives that you get for Kickstarter or GameFound is the other um, new one that people are using sometimes. They're not, they're not like that significant, you know, like some companies will like just try to string people into backing their Kickstarter campaign by offering them like a few cards, you know, like this huge game and whatever, and you could just wait for it. And when it comes in stores, you might be able to get it for cheaper. Quite honestly, I've seen that happen a number of times yeah. now. And then, yeah, and then, and then, uh, you know, like if you get it through Kickstarter, though, we'll give you, we'll give you these few. You want these few cards? Come on, come on, just, just take the, you know, take yeah. the cards. Yeah. And it's just like I, I don't know, man. And then, and then there's some really shady stuff going on surrounding the, uh, the benefit of of being the first to get the game. Yeah, yeah, the early birds. Yeah, well, well, uh, it's like uh, I think it was, yeah, I think it was Simon that that first did it. Where and like now I like I think I've seen like two or three other campaigns that have done the same kind of thing and they've been sort of upfront about it about like basically we're we're gonna you know do this campaign and your release date the Kickstarter release date is gonna be this but just so you know we're gonna put it out on in Target you know like a few months beforehand but it won't you know it won't necessarily be the full Kickstarter version right but like right. they're gonna get their games first yeah the base game will be out to the public yeah. like months before you'll receive your actual copy yeah and in the case of uh, yeah no it's nuts it's like completely unfair like the the uh worst one that i saw was i think still the first one where it was marvel united and marvel united was like the base pledge was like 60 bucks or something mm -hmm. and it came with came with a bunch of stuff like you get you know you, you get quite a bit with it but you but there's no lower pledge than that like you have to get their base pledge was like a pledge that came with a whole shit ton of extra Kickstarter content, which is fun. But, you know, there was no, like, base game, like, just core experience for cheap kind of option where you pay 30 bucks to get the core base game. But then they released a core base game at Walmart for $30. Oh, um, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that was, that and that was, shady. like, that came out months before Marvel United was delivered. Yikes. Ugh. Yeah. yeah. That that that's offensive because that is what you guys are touching on, I think, is a key part of what Kickstarter actually was in the beginning, too. It's not only that you get exclusive stuff, but that you get it first because you're you're like an investor. You know, you're building yeah. the company and that's your dividend is that you get first access to it. So to hear stuff like that, someone could go into Walmart and buy, I guess, like a not the deluxe version of the game, but the game for thirty five bucks. It, it does tarnish things because people do want to play the game itself. And yeah, the extras are nice. But to get that months later while people can actually play the, play the game just by walking into a Walmart, it's a slap in the face is what that is. Well, okay, but that is also a result of 
Target specifically has in like the last two years, like a couple years pre-pandemic, right? They've been picking up more and more of these hobby, you know, quote unquote hobby board games and carrying them and stocking them. So now that avenue is becoming wider, more widely available to publishers to to go down for another point of profit. So of course they're going to want to hit both sides. They want to bring in the money up front from Kickstarter and then basically this this you know they turn right and they can go down to Target and sell a bunch of copies there too. Like of I don't I don't like it, but obviously it's like it's keeping these publishers in business obviously. So what else are they going to do? Yeah, I think there's some tough calls to be made in in that regard for sure. Like uh, the the new version of Terraforming Mars, which is actually a game that was like one of the one of the more recent ones that I did back on Kickstarter, uh, the the Ares Expedition mm-hmm. version of Terraforming Mars. So that that game, what ended up happening was um, they did have deals. They did have a deal with Target, but they had intended for uh, the target release to be at least a little bit after the Kickstarter backers got their game. However, the Kickstarter production and whatever was a little bit delayed, which quite often happens. However, they were held by contract to deliver the the target versions, the retail versions of the game to target at a date that they could not change and could not delay for any reason. So they ended up having to update everybody as well, saying like, sorry, we didn't mean for this to happen, but target's going to be getting the the retail version before you guys get your copies right uh, and there there was a pretty big you know outcry because of that a lot of people were okay with it but yeah it's just like you know sometimes stuff like that happens and yeah i would imagine like being in that publisher's position it would be kind of tough um you know it's it's hard to say no to to a contractor to a deal like target right it's like think about how yeah. many copies of your game you can move through that it's like obviously very helpful for revenue i mean ter- terraforming mars for stronghold games is um is it's an evergreen title for them right like ever since it the day it came out terraforming mars has always generated money for that company it's the same it's a it's a it's a, another ticket to ride it's another settlers of Catan. those games will always make money for whoever is putting it out uh so I don't know. Yeah, obviously there's going to be the vocal minority that are going to be the loudest because of squeaky wheel and all that. But fuck, it doesn't matter. They can do whatever they want with that game and people are still going to buy it because it's fucking terraforming marks, right? Like people <laughs> yeah, are still exactly. flocking to the digital version of it when it was buggy as shit. It wasn't even working and people were still buying the fucking thing. So <laughs> you just come across those titles. It's funny how you get some of those titles where like it doesn't matter what version it is or how it comes out or when it comes out. Or what it looks like, people are gonna buy it. I mean, how many different, how many people in their collections have a dozen different types of ticket to ride, right? If you are really into that game, you're gonna have every version of that game. And a lot of those versions, to their credit, are very different from each other, especially when it comes to best player counts, just the individual maps and the regions. Maybe there's a region that you're more drawn to rather than the base, you know, uh, uh, North uh, North America uh, in regular ticket to ride. So there's definitely the variance there. And I don't think like Terraforming Mars doesn't really have that variance, right? Like, I don't really know what the difference is with these this Ares expedition, but there are, like, at least half a dozen expansions for Terraforming Mars, right? By the time you put everything together, if you have everything, the game takes you six fucking hours to play because there's, like, the stack of cards is up to your fucking eyeballs. And, like, <laughs> I don't know, yeah, man. It actually like, is. It's right? Like- it does get that tall. Yeah, it's right. Like barely an exaggeration. Especially if you like uh, do the drafting variant at the beginning of the game, just so everyone's a little more comfortable with yeah. how starting off goes. Just, <laughs> that game gets to be a marathon. 
Yeah, it does. Well, and I, I think that they're they're planning for the same the same kind of experience for Ares Expedition. They wanted it to be. It's funny. So so Ares Expedition is is marketed as like a more streamlined. So they call it Terraforming Mars, the card game, as if Terraforming right. Mars isn't That's already a card, card game. game. <laughs> but, but, but they they frame it that way because they're trying to make it sound like, oh, this is like the lighter version, you know, because when you think of like Settlers of Catan, the card game or whatever, yeah. the card or game. Castles of Burgundy, the dice game or any, any dice yeah, game, during, yeah. right? Like it fits in your pocket. Take it and play it anywhere. Yeah, yeah. So, so the, you know, this new version is supposed to be that. Every time I have played it, it has taken a minimum of like two and a half, three hours. <laughs> it is still a, a beefy game, a meaty game. People have a hard time wrapping their head around some of the concepts sometimes. Mm. Um, it's it's definitely a lot of fun, but it is like, essentially, it's terraforming Mars with a smaller board that you don't really do as much on. And then all of the card play and the card interactions and stuff are like equally complex and equally like there's like a lot of different stuff you can do with your engine building. Right, right. Um, right. So... It, it, I, honestly, like my feeling about Ares Expedition is that they they just wanted a, a reason to update the art. <laughs> uh, <laughs> At least that's how it works in my imagination. Cards. <laughs> oh god, it was horrible. That was the reason I never bought Terraforming Mars. Oh, I was like, I, I'm unwilling to buy this game because they didn't put enough attention into the into the production of it. Yeah. And they came up with Terraforming Mars uh, Ares Expedition, and it was like, well, I do like the gameplay of Terraforming Mars. Okay, fine, you got me. Uh, I will buy this game. Well, I mean, originally Terraforming Mars was actually produced in the U.S., which is why the uh, first batch, a couple batches of copies were so fucking expensive. I remember paying, yeah, I remember yeah. probably 80 Canadian for that, for my copy. And it comes with nothing. There's nothing in the box. It's just cards. It's just cards yeah. and, some, and some cardboard and hexagons. Like, yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. the board's kind of nice, but like, there's nothing else in that box. There's not $80 worth of shit in that box. <laughs> but it is when it's constructed in North America, I suppose. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's the thing. That's why no one's, no one's making anything in North America. Well, it's that's, such, right. that's such a hard problem too, man. Like, I would love to be able to, I looked into that. I looked into producing my game in Canada locally. Mm -hmm. And it was just like, okay, so I'll have to charge my backers $50 for a, like, you know, like 90 card card game right. in a little tiny box. Like, don't think that's going to work. So Can't do it. I don't know if you have the numbers on the top of your head, but like what percentage would you say of your backers were like Canadian versus US? Because like if you get something made in Canada and most of your people buying are US, that exchange rate might come and come pretty handy there maybe that's true yeah um i i think that actually like a decent amount of people were in canada for for me just because like my my initial my initial like backer base a lot of it was just like friends and people that i knew through game design communities right. and other like conventions that i had gone to and collected emails from and like demoed the game with people here in canada yeah i think i think like probably i mean like i only had like 300 and something backers and probably like at least half of those were here in canada yeah so. that makes sense yeah. yeah i mean that's where your network is right that's where the word of mouth is originating from and spreading from kind of thing right like i mean yeah with the advent of being online i guess that's less important to pinpoint but i mean that totally makes sense well it is it is less important to pinpoint i mean you yeah you don't really have to do much with your with your local market if you're publishing something bigger like like say say i have a new design and now I, now I don't want to, first of all, now this game is a bigger production. I'm going to need more money to make a thousand copies of this. Right. And, you know, now like it's important for me to get a bigger backing. I like, I need, I need the campaign to make more money, this kind of thing. 
I'm gonna at that point have to start looking more into the sort of like mainstream marketing avenues that other publishers use as opposed to uh, just going you know to like local conventions or like I was I was literally going to like uh, board game meetup events in Vancouver and yeah. just like asking people if anybody wanted to try this game that I was going to be kickstarting and whatever and like give me some advice on it or whatever um, you know I did a lot of that that doesn't work you know like th going to conventions has some credence to it for sure I think like it's that's a valuable uh, strategy for, for to like get people playing your, your game playing your prototypes getting excited about it talking to their friends about it um, especially if you're already a publisher and you have other games that they like and they came to your booth specifically to try your new stuff, like all of that feeds into it. But I think like a, a lot of what companies do or a lot of what like bigger campaigns require, if you're going to try to make over like upwards of $50,000 or whatever, you're going to have to spend a bunch of money on marketing. You got to, you know, you got to like either pay a bunch of reviewers or, you know, like do like a whole crap ton of Facebook ads. I know is like a very popular strategy. And, and like, I, you know, ideally it's like a number of these things that you just like, you'd be doing all of it, right? You like have all the review videos, you have the, 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 the Facebook ads, you have board game geek ads, you have, you know, like just, just a bunch of, a bunch of marketing that you do to, to get that kind of following. Um, and it, and most of it does happen just like over the internet. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's not feasible for an individual creator. Like an individual creator isn't going to rent out booth space at any convention and, you know, pay the thousands of dollars to go down that route too, right? That just doesn't make, doesn't make any sense. Yeah. I had like no marketing budget for, for <laughs> right. Wizard Thieves. I think, I think like the entire campaign, I maybe spent like a couple hundred bucks on like a couple of, a couple of days of board game geek ads. And then like a little bit of Facebook advertising, like, like very, very minor though. Right. 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 Cause it's honestly, it's impossible to tell like at that scale, like, well, is any of this resulting in, in, um, conversion, you know, like, people are clicking my, my ads and going to the page, but like, like I got a bunch of clicks from this one area of Europe. Okay. Like, should I focus on that area of Europe? Is that actually amounting to anything? Like, I just, I just don't know. And I don't have the time to, to look at that because I'm busy running my freaking campaign. So like, I'm just going to fucking do what I need to do. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That sounds hectic as fuck. I don't, I don't know if I can handle it myself, but by yourself, it's a lot. Mm -hmm. By yourself, I would I would never do another campaign on my own. I would like want to at least have one other person if I was going to do it on my own. And I think from now on, I'm just going to go through publishers. Yeah, I mean, but yeah, God, pitching to publishers is going to be its own whole ordeal too, though, right? Like, it's not as bad as running a Kickstarter campaign. <laughs> you can take the lesser of the two evils, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, P pitching a game to me like is is. It's just far, far less effort. And actually, like, like pitching, I think once once you've gotten used to it, once you've done it a few times, and now that, like, a lot of that happens online, it's it's a lot, like, feels like lower pressure. Mm. And once, you, once you've gotten your head around that, that process and what you need to be, like, how you need to refine your pitch and this kind of thing, like, there's a whole process. There's a whole, like, kind of formula, and you can read about that. It's pretty easy to find information about pitching your games to publishers. But, um, you know, when, when you get that down, it, it doesn't feel like that much work relatively. Actually, like once you get the game signed and then now usually, unless the, de unless the developer is like, a, or the publisher is like a very large company where they're like, okay, cool. You got this idea. We like it. We're taking it. We're going to have our developers work on it. Here's your contract. Bye-bye. Uh, most of the time publishers are actually going to get you to do a lot of the development. So you get the game signed. But then now you're on the hook to like, okay, now I have to finish the rest of the, the development of this game 
before they want to put it up on Kickstarter or publish it via whatever contracts they might have with various developer uh, distributors. So yeah, it's um, that that's really where the work is. All the work in, in board game design is in playtesting. Yeah, it's that's like the the vast vast majority of it is just like playing your game, refining it, reiterating, making new stuff, making changes, taking notes, like all that. So do you have? Uh, I mean, you mentioned like kind of these designer networks that you have. Do you have anybody that you liked that you have like a go to? Like you bounce ideas back and forth with like a group of people. Uh, do you have you ever like co-designed something on a, a worked with like multiple designers on a single project before? Uh, not not like so specifically like worked with with somebody where like we're doing an equal share of the work kind of deal. I mean, when I was working on my first design, which I I still don't know if I'll ever put it out. It's I I don't want to give up on it, but uh, the first design was me and my buddy Jeff um, primarily did did the work on that together. Because I was the one working at the print shop and I was the one with all the design skills. I was the one actually producing all the stuff. But then he was the one who was always there to play it with me. And, you know, like we were equal partners in that process of playtesting it and, you know, deciding what we did and didn't like about that particular iteration and whatever else. The, the, the thing about, about board game design is like you cannot do it alone. It's not like any other creative field. You can make a film alone. You can you can make a, you can make an entire album by yourself and never never show it to anybody until it's 100% complete and then and then just put it out to the world and and market that as a product. It's impossible to do that with a board game. I mean, unless you somehow feel like it's a good idea to only ever playtest the game by yourself, playing as all players, <laughs> and then you do all the art for it and all this stuff, yeah, and yeah. then just put out this product. Like it's a very collaborative. It's a very collaborative thing, and I think it naturally just happens where most designers end up getting involved in some kind of playtest group. Um, there's a couple in here in Vancouver that I'm a part of. There's tons of them online now. Like everybody's just doing Discord, and there's like the Board Game Design Lab um, on Facebook is a very popular community, and they're you know they have their their own kind of like core members that are very active on there, and uh, you know you can reach out to any of those guys and offer to exchange playtests. Um, there's so many avenues. There's so many avenues for playtesting, especially if you have like a tabletop simulator version of your game. Mm, you can yeah, you can get yeah, it yeah. playtested like no no questions asked. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I do I do I will give a shout out here to the game artisans of Canada who kind of got me started on on like formal playtesting and and being in a part of a formal playtesting group, um, especially uh, Jay Cormier and Graham Jans, uh, they're, they're two designers that are, uh, I, I guess Jay is, is probably more well-known in the industry. Um, he's published, I don't know, something like 20 or 30 games. You know, he's, he's got off-the-page games now, which is his own company that does, like, comic book-themed games and, like, specifically comic books that he enjoys. So it's kind of cool that he gets to do that. But uh, he's very, he's like, he, him and, him and, and um, Graham have, they've been, very consistent in their attendance of that group, first of all. And second of all, like they do try really hard. Like they're both fairly, you know, they're, they're pro designers. They have like pretty popular games, like in the hall of the mountain King, you know, is like, it's a pretty, pretty big game and they're busy. They have to work on all these, on these projects, but they will make time for people. Like even if somebody who's brand new to game design wanted to get involved with the game artisans of Canada, they could, they could, you know, like reach out, via the the uh facebook group or whatever and 
potentially to join us for a Tuesday night. And they may not get their game tested right away on the first night, but as long as they're, they're joining and helping out and being a part of it, then you can get, you can get this advice from these, like, these really experienced designers who know what the fuck they're talking about. Like, they can give you really good advice. So that's, that was, you know, I, I kind of got lucky and got involved with that group on like happenstance, like really early in, in, in designing my stuff. And, you know, they've helped me test like two games that never even got, you know, got anywhere at this point. And then finally, my third title that I started working on was Wizard Thieves, which is the first game that got published. And then now I got another signed title um, that they've been testing with me from time to time. And another, another other title that isn't signed yet that I think will I'll probably start pitching soon. So it's getting a little bit more, getting a little more serious with it now. But like when I started out, like the first like four years that I knew these guys, I was just nobody. I still, you know, compared to them, like I don't really even exist in the, in the design um, community. And they're, you know, they're just nice <laughs> and willing to like help. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think often, I mean, that's what draws a lot of people to the hobby as well as the community that comes with it, I, I think too, right? And it's cool to see the different aspects of the hobby have their different aspects of community, right? And, and still overall supportive, <laughs> generally supportive where, wherever you go, right? <laughs> For the most part, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I love seeing these, these videos that like come out of some of the, some of the reviewer uh, uh, channels and stuff like that too, where they're just like, they're ripping on each other for like not liking games that, you know, they have like, play this, not that is like one that uh, I think is run by a couple of Canadian dudes. Yeah. It's like Quackalope and Board Game Co. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they just like bicker at each other about like <laughs> which which game is better. But even even when it's like non-cooperative stuff where people are like ripping on each other, it's still like, yeah, it is such a solid community. People are super inclusive and um, yeah, it's just, it's just nice. It's nice to like every, I haven't, I haven't like gotten involved with a, a test group where I've been like, oh, these guys are like mean, like unnecessarily just critical. And I don't right. enjoy talking to these people. I don't want to work on my games with them. Like every time I, I go to one of these things, like it could be like, I joined one that was in Seattle um, during COVID and just like went for a couple of their nights and just tested a couple of other people's games online. And they tested mine a couple of times. I didn't have time to keep it going because I was already doing two other groups. But, you know, as soon as I joined, I was like, man, all these people are great too. Like all of them. You know, everybody's just like nice and helpful and smart and creative and virtuous. Yeah, that's cool. I imagine they're probably always looking for play testers too, right? Like, yeah, never a shortage or always a shortage. It's kind of the, it's kind of the currency, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, it's like it's what you do. You, everybody's like passing play tests around under mm -hmm. the table, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's cool. I like that. That's good. Well, do you have any uh, maybe uh, final parting design wisdom you might be able to impart on uh, a fledgling designer? Uh, yeah, I mean, if anybody out there is is looking at designing a game or you're already kind of designing one, my main pieces of advice would be play test as much as you can. You know, like it's gonna you're gonna need. I'd say like uh, you know a game that gets published on average probably goes through a minimum of like a couple hundred tests or something like that yeah, before wow. it reaches the point where it's like well reasonably well developed a lot of the time more than that so play testing is like you just you just got to do it i think a lot of people like they have ideas and like people that i talk to about games who, who you know like they like i've met people at parties that have just been like oh i've got this game idea too you know and they talk about this idea and it's like okay cool like 
get a prototype together like build like build it just start like just just take that first step start build your prototype and then once you get it in front of some people you're probably going to have a really discouraging experience but don't be discouraged by that because you know that that's just how it, it all works that's good it's good that you get your game gets torn apart and you know that happens to everybody and like that's how you get better at doing it and whatever like you know you do see people in the industry now who are they're able to just like like ha- like idea like i ideify a game where they just like come up with the whole thing imagine the whole thing in their head build their first prototype and right away it's like oh this is actually pretty solid right away mm-hmm. but those are people like jay cormier who has already published you know like 30 plus games or whatever um so but nobody starts out like that and yeah get yourself involved in a, in a community of some kind you know like get on the board game design lab um facebook group and um you know try to find a, a local community of, of testers who are like meeting up weekly or whatever try to make a regular habit of it it's a good thing to do as well cool um yeah if you want it you'll get there all right are you listening emily i know you're out there that's for you you get on it emily come on you can do it get on it emily listener no that that that, that's an awesome segment guys and i i uh leland awesome on you for uh really taking charge with this segment in the interview i think you did a fantastic job same with you jeremy i like i was just sitting back for a lot of this being like wow this is amazing information and and kind of a really cool story i mean you never think of things like play testing and getting bad feedback and and refining things you know i someone completely layman who I mean, I used to create board games for use at, like, recess when it was raining outside at, at like, grade school. But that was about it. And um, actually, no, you know what? I did one time use a Chinese manufacturer to get some cards to uh, to expand the game. What what was that role-playing game, Leland, where I made the cards to expand it? Uh, Fiasco. Fiasco, that's it. Yeah. Yeah, so so that was the closest I came. But You designed an expansion. That I, counts. I, I did. It was fun. We played it once. It actually, it, it honestly worked well, but that was just kind of like a hobby basis. And I, I think, you know, because I did it in a group of friends who were very kind to me play testing it, um, you know, that's different. I, I love how you're talking about refining it in these groups that you can find, uh, refining your, your mechanics and your, your game. I think that's great. I think people that are naive, such as myself, think that you just throw a game out there and people are like, oh, this is amazing. And you do a Kickstarter and you get $500,000 and you're off to the races. But it's not like that in real life. No, not really. I mean, you kind of got to, that's not for everybody either. You kind of got to decide what you want, what you want, right? Like, do you want to just like make a, make a, a quick and easy, like prototype for you and your friends to play. And like, that's it. Like once you're, once you're there, you're satisfied or like, are you wanting to publish your game? Like, like, like seriously, like get it, get a publisher on project and, and put out, put out like a, a X number of copies and like have it be on shelves at stores. Cause that's a totally another level of commitment. And then beyond that, do you want to be a designer, which is a, different thing where Mm. you're not and i've heard a lot of designers talk about this in interviews as well it's like it's not just you put out one game and then and then that's it whatever then you know like that's for some people but that's not what being a designer is being a designer is like you really commit to the art and like you know like you're wanting to like kind of make a 
not even necessarily career of it because you know like it takes a lot to to make a decent living out of just designing board games most board game designers do it on the side but to make it like a serious ongoing hobby where you know like you want to be involved in this industry long term or whatever that's another level um yeah so it's just about you know about what you want yeah it's interesting one of one of our first guests probably first six months when we started having guest hosts here was a guy named randy who uh was he, he worked on mechanics specifically for board games um one of his more notable games was smash up at the time and oh wow yeah yeah yeah, yeah. he actually he had some pretty cool story he was the guy that uh in exchange for teaching will wheaton how to play football he got will wheaton to allow his likeness to be used as a card it was kind of a cool story hearing that because <laughs> uh, will cool. wheaton is just a random card and smash up so yeah randy nice. he was uh he's a friend of mine now he's a good good guy but uh yeah it's just interesting just like there's so many stories when you get into the board game industry it's just you you know your story is unique randy's story was unique hopefully we have more board game designers on in the future board game creators and it's uh yeah I, I, I don't know what else to say. It's just a, a lot of uniqueness in the stories. So, Yeah, for sure. It is it is interesting to hear different people and their, their backgrounds and how they got into it and, and all that kind of stuff. You actually, you don't have too many of those conversations when you're, when you're just chatting with your like fellow designers and playtesting stuff because you're just busy playtesting stuff. Right. But, um, but yeah, they're, they're, all, they're all pretty cool people. And like, yeah, it's a great, it's a great industry to be in. It's a great community. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, thank you for that. I mean, I, I think you've shed a lot of light on what it is like to be a, um, you know, a su- successful but indie developer and trying to kind of make your way into this thing in the, the 2020s. So I think that's great. Any other final, final thoughts or, or should we jump into our uh, final segment for today? Yeah, well, I don't think I'll have all that much to say, so it'll balance out you being quiet for Crazy about Cardboard, but <laughs> take it take it away. Well, Leland, we've been friends for a long time, so you know if you can more or less shut me up for half an hour, that's basically a Christmas miracle. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's Christmas come early. That's Christmas in November. <laughs> that's right. Well, it's time for Movie Musings, and I didn't actually come up with a witty... Uh, title for this movie musing segment i i could i was thinking of calling it like sands of arrakis but whatever that's that's just a dune term so i don't know we'll we'll probably just call it movie musings but i i wanted to discuss dune so one of the things we do listener when we have a guest host on this is kind of like a peer behind the uh wizard of oz's curtain is of course we always do two segments so usually our guest host as a segment that is is going to be the dominant segment, such as you know, Jeremy with his experience designing board games, but we want to try to figure out something else for the second segment. And uh, Jeremy and I kind of connected, and we talked about Dune. Jeremy, to your credit, I, I appreciate the time that you spent actually watching Dune to prepare for the episode. Very different than Leland. Very different. So, <laughs> hey, I knew but, Wizards Thieves existed. You didn't. I d- no, I don't know. I, I figured you were like emailing Jeremy in the background to figure out all this extra info. I researched the guests. Come on, give me some fucking credit. <laughs> you research nothing. That's like part of your culture on this show. 
you research nothing, and I go into this segment, yeah, and suddenly it's not even you're a like, loop once in a while. Suddenly you're talking like you're like this expert who's written five books on Jeremy's <laughs> career, and I'm like, what is going on? He just likes board games, man. I, he does. Let him, yeah, that's it. <laughs> You know what? Leland has been starved for this segment. I brought right? this up before. Oh my god! He has Pandemic's been starved been for a good crazy about cardboard segment. So I think that that plays into it. Well, anytime you want to do another, <laughs> yes, right. Absolutely, Let's go. buddy. We'll have you back. We got to have you back two more times before your triple crown. So officially, stamped, <laughs> that's right. Which we shall. But. Let us jump into this final somewhat minor segment because I really want to discuss Dune and sci-fi movies by extension. Um, It drives me up the wall, and Leland knows this, that Denis Villeneuve, my favorite director, fellow Canadian, 12 of us, made my second favorite movie of all time. And listener knows, like, I'm a huge, huge movie fan. Second favorite movie of all time, Blade Runner 2049, makes no money. And we even did a special episode on it on this show, reviewing it, but makes no money. So we get to Dune, and Dune, now granted it was split between theaters and its COVID as well as being released on HBO Max, but uh, Dune barely made enough money to get the second part of the movie greenlit because One of the things about Dune Listener, if you don't know, if you've been living under a movie rock, is that the movie that is released out in theaters currently is is literally half a movie or half a whole. I guess you you have to say it's a movie, but it's very much part one. It literally says at the title, part one, and it, it stops. It just truncates. It's done, and the credits roll. And we almost didn't get that second half because... Almost didn't sell enough tickets, but then it did just enough to validate the the green lighting of the second part. So I kind of I wanted to do two things. I wanted to review it, and Jeremy has seen it as well. And we want to do at this point just spoiler free reviews because uh, well Leland hasn't seen it. First of all, if he did, maybe we do spoiler filled reviews. But it's only been out a few weeks. We want to encourage you because okay. This is not really a spoiler, but I know Jeremy put in an email to me. He loved the movie, as I did. So we want you to see it. We want you to put money towards this movie. So spoiler-free reviews, but also talk about, like, what the hell is happening with sci-fi movies recently? And why are people not going to theaters to pay for them? Because they don't have lightsabers. You need a lightsaber. (laughs) Lightsabers put an ass in the seat. That's that's, that's how they sell tickets. Thank you, you Star Wars hating man who somehow watches the entire animated series and knows all the lore that I don't even know. I mean, I'll watch it, but whatever. This is you, the completionist. The Yeah. You know, I, I think I, I want to kind of kick this off myself, uh, you know, regarding the the review, because I, I have been a passionate advocate for this movie since I saw it. I saw it on opening night. And I don't mean like Friday. I mean, it came out on a Thursday, even though it like all the media outlets said it was coming out on Friday, but it came out on a Thursday a couple weeks ago. And myself and and my friend Joe uh, got tickets and we're like, are these tickets going to be canceled? Because we thought the movie really was a Friday release, but apparently no. You could get on on Thursday. We saw it in the VIP theater 
about 45 minutes drive from where I live in, in Abbotsford. And uh, I, I was blown away. I have not read, read the books, full disclosure, but I was blown away. And it is perhaps the first movie where I left the theater and I could not think of a single criticism. I spoke about the movie with Joe. We, we hung out outside of the theater for about 20 minutes. And I tried to wrap my brain to think about something that was wrong with this movie. But I couldn't find anything. And I think that filters into my review where, you know, is the casting done? Yes, listener. I can tell you the casting is phenomenal for every role. In my opinion. This is all my opinion. The, the art design is great. The writing is great. Um, the, like the ships and, and everything is just so immersive and everybody who's in the movie is so dialed in. The one person who does stick out that I will say is Jason Momoa. Like Jason Momoa is having so much fun as Duncan Idaho in this movie. It just puts a smile on your face. I don't know if he just loves sci-fi or Dune or he's just happy to be in this movie, but every scene he's in, he, he steals to, to the very end. I thought the music was great. And I I have to throw out like a, a plug maybe to the show, but also to a friend. One of our more recent guests was Eric Petey. Uh, Eric is quite high up in the CGI uh, animation super supervision industry for Hollywood. Friend of mine now and his wife is also in animation. She handles... Um, sometimes animation supervising, but often texture, shading, and just making sure that the overall models cross the uncanny valley. And uh, she did a lot of work on the ornithopters in the movie, and I thought the ornithopters were one of the best parts of the movie. So good. And so um, I, I don't know how to pronounce her name, Isa or Asa. I haven't met her yet. Isa, I think it's probably Asa. You did a fantastic job, and I told Eric to tell her, and he said he did because I implored him pretty strongly that that her ornithopters <laughs> were, were amazing. Because I was basically in a mood like I am right now. I had just seen the I, when I talked to Eric was about four days after the movie had been released. Ticket sales were lukewarm, and I basically went to Eric and started texting him like, "What is going on? Like this drives me nuts because this is such a fantastic movie." So I, I have literally nothing bad to say about it. I think the only thing I can say is go see it so you know what you're going to see in part two. 10 out of 10. First movie I've ever rated on this show in the four years we've had this podcast, I'm giving it 10 out of 10 because I, I can't find anything wrong with it. But after that, saying that, I want to hand it over to Jeremy, who's seen it recently. Jeremy, your thoughts and your spoiler-free review, please. Yeah, I mean, like, I kind of resonate with a lot of what you're saying, honestly. I mean, I, I didn't go through the process of, like, you know, uh, finishing the movie and then trying to figure out what was wrong with it. Just because, like, I don't know, I give Hollywood the benefit <laughs> of the doubt a lot of the time in general. I'm like, well, I'm not expecting movies to be perfect. I don't fucking care anymore. <laughs> well, Leland rubs off on <laughs> but, me. He's very he clearly don't have a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but that that said, I do, you know, I do recognize when when a movie exceeds that expectation that like it's good because mo most of the time I go to a movie these days and like it's probably going to be okay. I'll see it. See it. Like, it'll be it'll be fine. 
this was better than fine. This is like a pretty, yeah, pretty like phenomenal, um, like cultural piece kind of almost, you know, like it's because it, it is based on a, on a book that influenced a lot of sci-fi. Um, and I like I haven't read the book either. Um, I've I've got friends that have and they talked about it a lot and, and this kind of thing. And I, I've thought about reading it and I might and I might still. But in any case, I know that the book is very um it's very like about, like all about the world building and like sort of the political interactions between these houses and that kind of stuff. And like a lot of that kind of intrigue comes through in the movie, just like the, yeah, the, the interaction of these, these different groups of people. And, um, you know, like you, you get this, this sense of like, well, it also, it happens in what year, like 10,000 something. And, you know, like that, that kind of comes through like everything in like and visually especially like everything in the movie is like so colossal and just like i like it you know and, and obviously with the quality of cgi these days everything looks very real and it's it's kind of beautiful like it's like it's it's very artistic um i think again it's 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 culturally relevant in as much as i feel like the the book like the story in general is a bit of a commentary on on human interactions and human politics as well um there's a, like there's themes in the movie that you'll you'll be familiar with just like being a person on earth but then also there's a, a certain sense of like unfamiliarity that comes with the worlds that they're on and like you know monsters and all kinds of crazy things that you don't see here on our planet but uh yeah it's just a really great combination of everything that that i i love in movies um yeah, like I don't, I don't really have any complaints about it either. And I, got, I will say this: it is the first movie I have seen in, I don't even know how long, many years at this point. It's the first movie I've seen in many years that I watched it, and it's only been a day, and I want to watch it again. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. I, I know completely what you're, you're saying, because. You can tell there's a lot of nuance in there. I mean, there's a lot of beauty that you want to see a second time. There's a lot of nuance yeah. that I think you'd get more the second time. Even visually, like, just the Baron in his, like, black tank of healing and stuff that he goes into. It's just, you know, you want to see that. Like, the Sotokar, what they're saying. There, there's just so much. I mean, it, it honestly is a near-perfect movie. I was trying to think, well... Who would not like this movie? Well, it's people that who people that wouldn't like Dune. Like, it's not going to be everybody's cup of tea. It's hard sci-fi. Yeah. There's no humor yeah. beside a few scenes with Duncan Idaho. That's that's something that I think is important. If you're looking for like a sci-fi movie, like Avengers style, it's got a lot of quips that are going to make you laugh. It it's not that. Denny Villeneuve science fiction is not like that. He takes the subject matter so seriously that he doesn't do the Hollywood thing of introducing a bunch of humor there. I think it was a stretch for him to even have Jason Momoa do the humor. That's fine. It's good for, for a few chuckles, but yeah, it, 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 you really can't have a criticism for the movie except to say that it, you know, if you don't like it, you're never going to like it. Yeah, it's almost like if you don't like it, you probably don't like sci-fi or like like serious sci-fi. Right. You know? Because you can't see it's not exciting. It, it has battle scenes that it gets to pretty quickly. The special effects look great. All the acting's on par. It was very well casted. 
Um, the art direction's great. The sound, the music is very unique, but also very fitting. There, yeah, you're 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 right, Jeremy. It's like if you don't like it, you don't like sci-fi. One note I thought that I've thought of this previously, but I didn't bring it up. But I thought it was great that you brought it up right now. Is this movie possibly better than any movie I've seen in like the last twenty years? Does a great sense of scale because you were talking. Oh, yeah about like seeing how big the spaceships are and how big the city is. And one of the things the movie does that I, I felt was um, very clever is, so say for example, when the Harkonnens attack the Atreides and they're doing their, their slow little nuclear bombs that drill through the shields and hit the big spaceships that are parked. Well, in camera, you'll see people at the bottom, very tiny people near the spaceships and so that cues your brain to know, wow, that is like the most massive spaceship parked on the sand. Yeah, or like when the when there's that one ship that rises up out of the water and just the way that the water oh, moves, the way the water moves, like you can just tell that like, damn, that's a lot of water. Like that thing is huge and it looks great. It just looks so good. Oh, man. Totally. Well, yeah. one of the things you don't know, Jeremy, because we've just met is naval history is actually my biggest passion. And so the Atreides clan that they're air and sea and that they park all their gigantic ships under the ocean and like slowly bring them up when they want to be nomadic. It, it's just amazing because even again, I go to the art direction, the ships that come out of the water, their bows kind of look like a classic World War II battleship. They kind of have that shape to them. The back, back of the ship isn't like that, but, um, yeah, that, that was definitely an epic scene, seeing them come out of the, the... Well, it wasn't the ocean. It was more like a lake that they had parked. Yeah, it was like a like an inlet kind of or something. Yeah, like Loch Ness. It, it was great. And just to see how different everything was and, and the design of everything. I, I mean... Look, okay, I'll throw this because, Leland, you've been quiet, which is fair because you haven't seen the movie. Do you want to see the movie? Did you want to see it before this podcast? Or are we swaying you, or do you still not want to see it? Uh, I'm like neutral. I, I well, I was neutral, but you guys are doing a good job of selling it. And like, I want to jump on the bandwagon <laughs> here. I want to get in on it. I did almost go see it last night because I'm like, boy, I kind of want to get in on it and talk about it. But I just uh, didn't have the energy to, to go sit through a two and a half hour movie uh, after work <laughs> yesterday. <laughs> but I absolutely want to see it. Um, I do think it's interesting, though. So I have a question. You say, you know, the people that don't like it are like most likely not fans of sci-fi. But is it people? Are people seeing this movie and rating it lowly, or is? I mean, the problem is just people aren't going to see it at all, right? Right. So people who aren't seeing it immediately think they won't like it, and that's the reason they're not going. Or is there some other thing that people just can't get over? Is like some weird mental hurdle that people can't get over? Is it the legacy of Dune and its failures in the past? Because obviously, the, like the novel itself has a huge following too, right? Like you mentioned the you mentioned Dune, and in any room full of people that are you know a little little bit a tiny bit nerdy, people are gonna be like, oh, I love that book, right? Like someone one out of five for sure has got to say, I love Dune. That was a great book. Like anywhere you go. Well, you're asking so a great question. I mean, th th this is essentially what you're asking now is the second half of this segment, which is why is this movie not selling it? And to an extent, 
Well, okay. So let me throw let me throw some numbers at you. Maybe this will help, or probably most likely hinder. But I'm just seeing a report on the opening weekend. Uh, at TV analytics for HBO Max. It looks like it was viewed in 1.9 million households during the opening weekend, which did beat out uh, Jack Snyder's Justice League, which was at about 1.8. Uh, or no, let's see. Yeah, 1.8. But compare that to The Suicide Squad, the sequel to the worst fucking movie in history, <laughs> opened up with 2.8 million view household views. What? Wow. So, what? People are have so much more, are so much more forgiving for the sequel of a very, very terrible movie, like a legitimately bad movie, or a subjectively bad film. <laughs> like, what the fuck? Yeah. Why? Yeah, that's weird. I, I maybe maybe it's a branding thing. That was one of my thoughts when I was trying to trying to figure this out in my head after we decided to do this topic. Uh, you know, there's a couple of things that I could think of just psychologically. One is branding. Um, you know, like again, go, coming back to the, the point we made earlier about Simon, Marvel and DC are kind of the same way, where they can literally like throw shit on a stick and like you know, put it on a film screen and people will pay money to see it because it's the new DC thing or whatever. Um, superheroes are really big right now. You know, Dune, I guess, is this old franchise that like, like, I don't know, like locally or just like amongst my friends groups, people have been talking about it. You know, like it's, it's been like one of the more talked about movies that I've encountered in quite a while. So like, I'm not really sure what the deal is with that, to be honest. My theory is the casual moviegoer, the moviegoer that typically goes, oh, wow, this is the big thing that I want to see. I think Denis Villeneuve, he makes movies the right way. But if you see all the trailers, they do look what I think casual moviegoers would just call like weird. Like, oh, that looks too offbeat for me. Like such art direction and jagged lines and sand cities. And I don't get what's going on. And another thing is like, unlike a director like Steven Spielberg, who has a big cachet, like you say, Hey, do you want to see the new Steven Spielberg movie? You know, people that don't really like movies a lot, but will watch them because they're popular. Like my mom is a good example. She'd be like, Oh, Steven Spielberg. Sure. Let's go. Well, Denis Villeneuve has made a lot of great movies, but none of them have really punched that blockbuster sphere at all. Like, not even close. I mean, you look at it, and I think some of them were fairly financially secure, like Sicario and Arrival, but they were by no means big blockbuster movies. So he's not this big, well-known director, even though he was voted a couple years ago by his peers as the best director of the 2010s. So, you know, within the community of people who appreciate film and science fiction, the guy's like a borderline god. But to the casual moviegoer who fills the seats a lot and keeps filling the seats week after week, I just think he's not well-known enough, and I don't think the source material is well-known enough, and I think the trailers just make it look like a inaccessible like hard sci-fi movie that's my opinion yeah maybe dune's just not murica enough you know uh, maybe yeah. the the trailers really do seem to cater to an audience that is already familiar with dune and the source material um because yeah it's like it's clearly like 
purposely displaying, you know, aspects of that story in the book that are recognizable to, again, the people that are already familiar with it. Like they're sh It's showing, hey, you love this. Look at the way we're doing it. And that's the vibe I get from it because I'm not familiar with any of it. So a lot of it is like, oh, that looks cool, but it has no other meaning to me. So I comp I totally get that. And even thinking about Blade Runner 2049 stuff, that was also very dependent on people who were familiar with the original Blade Runner. Any of those trailers, it just kept, you know, well, one, it showcased Harrison Ford, and, you know, we see his character, and uh, it's giving you little tidbits that are, are in the universe. Like, you know, we see the date on the tree or whatever in one of the trailers for Blade Runner 2049 and that kind of stuff. It's, yeah, the, the direction of some of these these trailers for, for these movies, uh, they don't cater to a wider audience, now that I'm thinking about it. I think that's a valid criticism, for sure. And, like, the trailer can make or break a movie, right? Like, there's a reason yeah. that we put out trailers for things, because that's word of mouth generation. That's what is making buzz, and will make or may not make buzz for your film. Yeah, I wonder I wonder if they like at least with the trailer like if they kept the movie the same but made the trailer out to be a little bit less of like a an art piece kind of like cuz it cuz the trailer for these movies they, they do kind of have a little bit of like a a film festival kind of vibe to them almost yeah. you know what I mean they seem a little bit more like obviously high budget but still kind of like indie or like I don't know they just have a different kind of feel to them than your typical Hollywood movie trailers you know, so so maybe maybe if they like went a little bit more typical Hollywood, you know, uh, movie trailer, then then like more people would go to see it. And if they saw it, they probably wouldn't be like, oh, I'm so disappointed that this wasn't more like the trailer. You know, like I wonder if that would be a, a, a valid strategy for them to use. Yeah, I I don't know how many times you bitch when you see content in a trailer and you go and see a film. And you're like, well, why wasn't this cool part of the trailer wasn't in the movie at all? <laughs> like, what the what the hell are they doing? So what kind of what kind of buzz and word of mouth is that going to generate? I guess. So let me ask you two a question: Is Dune Game of Thrones in space? Because that is actually that's a vibe I get from the trailers. Yeah, Jeremy, you 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 give your opinion first. I I'll chime in second. I feel I feel like the Expanse is more like Game of Thrones in space. <laughs> okay, I, I would agree <laughs> with that personally. Well, do you do you get what I mean when I? describe it that way the vibe of the the trailers i don't know why i just get like this you know the 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 ruling houses and stuff i don't know yeah yeah with the and the the, the drama kind of yeah. atmosphere and, maybe and that kind of thing maybe it's just because like those aspects are pretty tropey by now and that's why i'm picking up on it moby what, what do you think what do you think what's your opinion so for the for whatever you want to say for the criticisms of the David Lynch 1984 movie, it did hone in much more on the conflict between the houses and the different groups. What I think Denis Villeneuve did for whatever reason, perhaps it's to unlock it much more in part two, he kind of minimized the conflicts in the galaxy between the different factions. So what I mean by that is, he basically, it's like, well, House Harkonnen, the, you know, the bad guys, oh, well, they were kicked off of the planet Arrakis, but oh, now the uh, Atreides are weak and the Emperor is going to help them by giving them Sadakar, which are like these amazing Imperial soldiers, give them a couple battalions of that to, you know, 
kick back out the, the Atreides. And it doesn't really go into why much, whereas the David Lynch... So, for example, this movie doesn't show the Emperor at all, or his court, or anything like that. The Emperor is a powerful figure. He, he can be considered... Well, he is from a house, but he can be considered like his own entity. And in the Lynch movie, it had the Emperor. In this movie, it doesn't have him at all. Not a single scene. Same, now I, I guess it is the first part of the first book that was adapted, but you learn later that the Sotokar are their, basically their own entity themselves, like a house in a way. They're, they're pretending that they're not, but they are. But that was not shown or hinted at at all in this film either. So it really avoided and kind of focused on Harkonnen and Atreides, but that almost like Harkonnen just tried to kick out Atreides because they were offended that they lost Dune in the first place, and that's it. There's not a ton of hatred between them. Maybe there's a comment. Actually, I can't talk about that because it would be a spoiler moment, but there's a comment that's made at one point that makes it seem like, oh yeah, we've always been fighting each other. Our houses are always at battle. But for a layperson, until you got to that point, you wouldn't have thought that. So they really oh. minimize the, the. So the conflict is is more out of tradition than actual hatred or spite for each other. Uh that that's definitely spoken of at that one spoiler filled scene. I don't want to mention, but that's like one of the very few references to that. Otherwise, what you think is that the emperor unfairly removes the Harkonnen who were harvesting spice. They had Arrakis. The emperor unfairly removes them, and Harkonnen just comes back swinging swinging to retake it. And it really is that simple, how, how the movie yeah. makes it seem. You know, uh, I'm sure a lot of people would disagree with this, and maybe some of the listeners will be up in arms about it, but or listener, sorry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I, I honestly, like, I'd be more compelled to compare this movie, like, rather than with the Game of Thrones book series, with the Bible. Like, I feel like there's a lot more focus on like this kind of like prophecy of, you know, the boy and his mother. And like this, there's, there's a focus on this, like yeah. there, there's a protagonist here. It's not like Game of Thrones is, I don't, I never really got the sense from Game of Thrones that there was a protagonist. Right. There's a bunch of different stories going on and a bunch of different characters. And it's all about these like, you know, political interactions between them and whatever. And this movie, I felt like, did have more of a more of a protagonist. And yeah, I, like I just yeah, I wouldn't. I don't know if I if I could compare the like I, I could I could see where people might want to compare it with Game of Thrones, but again, um, yeah, I think that it has has a lot of other stuff going on. It has a lot of a lot of other elements and just different different uh, different themes than what you would find in Game of Thrones. Yeah, I, I actually agree with you, Jeremy. It's it's interesting you mentioned that because I read a review today from Forbes on Dune. It's like a week old, but it came up in my my Google feed. And the, the reviewer said, well, you know, the Dune is perfect except for one big issue. And so I kept scrolling and reading to try to find out what the one big issue is. And he, he said basically what you're saying right now is that it focused on this whole spiritual messiah figure of paul and his mom and where he's going and not enough about everything else and one of the things that this guy said which is true there's very very little that you see on arrakis of the atreides mining it until the harkonnen attack now 
granted, you know, there's there's the mini series that was pretty well received. I think it came out in 2004, which I own. There's a lot more of seeing the Atreides try to make a go of it, mining spice on Arrakis before the whole Messiah thing, Paul in the desert um, happens. But I, I do feel this movie is pretty much like, okay, yeah, we got to get to to Paul and more Paul and Paul in the desert and Paul meeting Fremen and stuff like that. And, you know, let's just like go through all this other stuff really quick. So I don't know if that was your point, but I, I kind of see that. Yeah, that's pretty much my point. Yeah, okay. That's how a fucking book is written, though. Right, like it's fucking not. It's of course that makes sense. It's a novel from 1985. That's where the source material is coming from. You write a protagonist, and the story revolves around your fucking protagonist. That's how a novel is written. Well, okay. First of all, the book was written many decades before that. Like the the David Lynch. I respect respect David Lynch, and so do you, Leland. But he cannot (laughs) go back in time a year before a book is written and make a film. Whatever. Off that. Whatever. But that's, that's <laughs> but the point still stands. That's how a fucking book is written, right? That's how a story is written. It's written around a person, generally. Right. A lot of the time. I mean, like I say, though, like I don't really feel like Game of Thrones is so much that way. I think sometimes there's like multiple protagonists, I guess, or. Yeah, well, the thing with Ga- uh, Game of Thrones is everyone in Game of Thrones think, thinks they are the protagonist. And that's where <laughs> that's it's right. diff- That's where it's different, right? I guess. So should they have so should they have changed them like how much would that have impacted the final film then if they had tried to make these the tangent characters or the side characters again I'm not trying to use that term like uh, to degrade their role in the overall plot but you know make them more of a focus how would that have affected the final film I think that's a very good question um especially in terms of like what the box office would have seen just because I think the fact that not, not, not so much that they had a protagonist and that that's an unpopular thing or anything like that, but Paul's character, he's young and it, you know, like it almost kind of makes the movie out. Like when you're, even when you're just watching the trailer, when you look at the trailer and it's about this, you know, kind of young prince like figure and you know, his, his like exploration of, Something or other, it's kind of vague in the trailers, but, you know, he goes off to this other planet and this kind of thing. I think that some people might get the impression that it's somehow like a teen drama or, or mm. something to that effect. Even if they don't think that consciously, I think there's some, some, this is one of the things that I was wondering about, about the box office numbers. Like, a, you know, there's, there's a psychological component of people going to see a movie because they can relate to one or more characters in that movie and I think that people find find that they can they can relate to like you can you can relate to like a a, a Sky Lord or Star Lord a lot more than you could or relate to like a Luke Skywalker or like any of these sci-fi characters that are just a little bit older because they're adults and whatever. Um, and like maybe if you see a movie and you're just like some punk kid, you're like ah, oh, it's sci-fi about some punk kid. I don't want to see that. Right. I like I wonder if that might be a factor for some people. So then is the problem with science fiction, which tends, like, I mean, like you said, Dune influenced a lot of the most popular sci-fi. Uh, but when you try to go back to the original source material, is it that that source material is just no longer relatable enough for a wider audience these days? Uh, I don't know if, if you could say that Dune isn't 
the, the, the original uh, book is, is like not relatable. And I mean, certainly you can't say that about, about sci-fi in general because there's so much of it and so much of it is written in different ways. Like, I don't think that like, you know, the Philip K. Dick books that influenced so many of the sci-fi movies that have come, you know, like Minority Report or, you know, Blade Runner or A Scanner Darkly, any of these, like, I think if you, if you read those books, like, they're still, they're still pretty relevant. Like, um, you know, there's, there's been, been a, f- a few people that I've seen saying, um, like, just in podcasts or in interviews, whatever, uh, like the guy who wrote Sapiens, I can't remember his name, Yuval, Noah, something. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. He was saying in an interview that sci-fi, and he's like, you know, like an economist, philosopher, psychologist, like, fairly influential figure. He knows what he's talking about. And he's saying that sci-fi is the most relevant genre of storytelling right now. Because even if you go all the way back to like the beginning of sci-fi, the concepts that are used in sci-fi are now becoming, you know, sort of like commonplace. Like, you know, the ideas about, about AI and things like that, um, even like space travel, this sort of thing. So, you know, I, like I don't think that, that, that sci-fi is, is irrelevant. In fact, I think that when sci-fi started becoming popular earlier in the 20th century and whatever, it would have been more relevant then than it is now. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it even just goes back to your, one of the original points you made was how how familiar all of the, the like themes of this movie still are, right? And yeah. thinking of like, you know, the source material from like the 60s still can be applied to real world aspects now, how some of this shit just never changes. And it's and it never will change. Is that pessimistic to say it's never going to change because no one's working to actually change these things? Like, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I don't know. It's kind of it's kind of funny how how our stories become our prophecies sometimes right. a little bit, right? Like, but and, and like a lot of the time we do it to ourselves. We look at sci-fi and like, oh, that's an interesting technology, or you know, that's an interesting ideology. Like, let's try that for you know whatever reason. It, it just seems like we move towards these things and people talk about them just in stories and then they start becoming a reality at some point. And it almost seems to happen invariably just as like a matter of how much time has passed since that, that story was first told. Like I would be curious to to know like what the first story that was ever told that involved a computer, like a high tech computer. Like what year did that story get published? And like, you know, how long did it take for people to actually start imagining how that would work and how it could like benefit society and starting to create that thing? Right. Um, it seems to always keep happening. Though. Yeah, yeah. It's funny though. Like, it seems to me that because the you know the aspects of sci-fi itself are we're getting closer and closer to some of these imag- imaginations and these imaginative worlds and scenarios and uh, devices and AI. You know they it very quickly now becomes uh it shifts from being science fiction to horror because we're just getting stories of how just fucking terrifyingly bad all this tech can turn right like it's less it seems to me it's less about the the fantastical science fiction aspects of a new technology and its benefits and its uses and its applications and more of like well how badly can someone fuck the world with this this thing here or this thing there or that thing over there yeah it's a black mirror is all about right right? exactly yeah that's exactly right yeah and you know i hear what you guys are saying and i mean that that that's like dystopian literature dystopian television is is what it's called you know the world's gone to hell um and i get what you're saying there i mean it's not 
really pleasant. It's not as happy. I hate to use this terminology, but it's like watching The Bachelor for two hours and seeing people get a rose and love and smiles and something like that. Like, you know, that that kind of science fiction is dark and disturbing and not super pleasant. It makes you think, but it's not it's not very pleasant. I mean, but the argument I would wake, uh, sorry, the argument I would make, and I guess you could lump in Black Mirror and stuff like that as, as part of Hollywood, but Denis Villeneuve within his sci-fi has not made that kind of Black Mirror style dark foreboding sci-fi. I mean, I, I would say that Arrival, which I watched recently, just about four weeks ago, I uh, had a very kind of comforting ending. Um, Blade Runner 49, yeah, 2049 had kind of a really cool ending where K discovers within himself what it is to be a person. Yeah, but just because it ends on a, a positive note doesn't discount the fact of what came before it and the world it's set in. How the fuck can you say 2049 is not a dystopic content or, or piece of film? Of course it is. That's the point of the world. Yeah, yeah. No, I'll give you that. I'll give you that. I was thinking too much of the ending. <laughs> Arrival, though, is fine the whole way through. It's basically just a mystery with kind of a True. Really cool yeah. ending. It's like the the ramifications of miscommunication. That's that's the that's the tagline for Arrival. <laughs> I, I'm I'm trying to think, but I mean, what what other sci-fi has come out? In the last few years. I haven't seen it yet, but maybe Tenet? I, um, I don't know. Tenet was... I watched it on a plane coming back from uh, uh, the Netherlands. It was... It was interesting. I guess it's sci-fi. Yeah, it's it's science fiction. It's not... I don't think it would fall... I wouldn't classify it as being like dystopic or anything like that. Hmm. But it also ends kind of happy-ish. I don't know. I guess it depends which character's perspective you're looking at. But yeah. I mean, how well did that do though? Like that that also was released uh, or wasn't it's release also pushed back because of the pandemic and it it didn't do very well either at the box office despite having Nolan's name attached to it cuz generally whatever Nolan puts out, people are going to go and see because it's Chris Nolan. So, I don't know, is that a result of is that a result of the the lack of enthusiasm for science fiction in general, or is it something else? That's a good question. I, like I, I was kind of wondering, you know, like I don't really, I haven't really looked at box office numbers for movies overall to see if there's like, is there just like a general decline? Is that what's going on? Like, is it really just sci-fi that's like sort of suffering this fate of, you know, dwindling sales and stuff like that? Um, or, you know, like. I feel like obviously like the really big names like you know any any you know Star Wars Marvel type movies that come out are going to still get a decent following but is it just anything else or is it is do you guys feel like sci-fi specifically is like kind of on the cutting on the chopping block I I think sci-fi in a way is on a chopping block I mean it depends what you consider sci-fi versus space opera as well I think that uh the the tr- sequel trilogy for Star Wars didn't perform up to Disney's financial expectations. Now, that's clouded by very questionable story and, you know, decisions that they made in making those films. But I look at something like even the uh, Star Trek series with Chris Pine and the younger crew. 
I felt that the third movie was probably the best of the three. It was the most Star Trek-y. It, it just was a, a load of fun. And that didn't do particularly well because we don't have a Star Trek 4. So that one crosses my mind. But, you know, but then beyond that, Star Wars, Star Trek, and the Denis Villeneuve movies, the sci-fi that he's done, I just don't feel like a lot of sci-fi has been done in general especially as far as like major A-list Hollywood releases. Hmm. Yeah, I wonder wonder what the deal is there too. Like if it, if that's just because again like sci-fi is becoming more like with with everything that's going on in the world, uh you know, not just in terms of, in terms of like covid times and whatever, but like the technological advancements that we're making and all this kind of stuff, maybe people are like bored with sci-fi because it's just like well reality is sci-fi enough i don't really need sci-fi because there's like tons of like robotics and different things that we can just go look at in real life um so maybe like it's lost a little bit of of its luster because of that although like i don't know i still feel like i don't know i'm such a sci-fi fan my opinion is so biased but i just feel like there's no way that it could that it could really be dying like I, i know so many people that are into this stuff and so many stories that are still like oh that's you know like like again i would highly recommend seeing all of the expanse it's it's a little bit slow to get going just in terms of like okay well what's happening here and like who are these people whatever just like make something happen it kind of feels like that at first but um you know it's a very it has a a really great kind of commentary and like a, a an interesting picture of what you know like the human world would look like like not so far down the road where we're going to all these other systems and stuff like that, but okay, we're like we're at the point where there's Earth, there's a, a lunar colony and a Martian colony, and then some stations around the the uh, asteroid belt and stuff like that. Like that's as far as we've gotten, and that's where our technological level is, and like what would realistically be possible and all this kind of stuff, and that that is still like far enough down the road that you know like we're not there. Like that's still like a fantastical thing. But it, you know, it's, um, yeah, it's still like, it's still kind of relatable and it's interesting and it's, um, you know, like you can kind of get this sense of like, oh man, like we could actually end up here. Like this is like a possibility. Totally. Uh, and that's so intriguing. And I just like, I can't imagine people like not um, seeing the value in that kind of entertainment. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think, well, I mean, I think television is where sci-fi has been excelling lately, I think. I just film i don't know if is the right medium for it maybe i don't know maybe because they because i mean with tv it doesn't matter what genre you're in you're able to tell a more thorough and extended story inject more detail in it more nuances you know obviously there comes the risk of having too much and way too much filler which so many tv shows before is i've fallen into the trap of and will continue to do as tv shows are created for different networks and you know being available but uh, like The Expanse and Altered Carbon. I mean, there's lots of great like TV sci-fi out there if you want it. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Yeah, yeah, the the long form definitely helps, I would say. In fact, I will say that I, I do think I can say one thing wrong with Dune. One thing that I didn't like about Dune. Okay. I just wish it were longer. I wish there were more of it. You know, like, <laughs> I, like I feel like they could have taken the amount of stuff that happens in just that two and a half hours you know, like I could have happily like had that spread out with like more of the details and the gaps filled in and watched like two or three whole movies just from, 
what happened so far almost. Well, well, the good news, Jeremy, is Jason Momoa says there's a four-hour director's cut out there, and he's been very oh, vocal about trying to get it released. Sick. So wow. it's not a matter of it not being shot or even put together. It's a matter of it being released. I think it's coming. It might take a couple years to come. If it exists, even with the success it's had so far, the lukewarm success, I, th- I think that's coming. So, yeah, especially since it exists. So your dreams are probably going to be fulfilled. <laughs> that's wonderful. That's wonderful news. Well, and what I'll say, again, you know, that was your negative to the movie, but I will go back with a positive. That two and a half hours of that movie did not drag for me. Like, when it was done, I was not like, at all. what? I was like... I've been engaged this whole time. Yeah, no, my negative wasn't really a negative. It was me like saying that I wish there was more. <laughs> it's, it's, it's coming. It's coming. I, I don't want to like go random here, but it, it is, it is sci-fi. So, um, my friend, friend of the show, Eric Petey, that I told you seems involved in everything. Um, he's supervising stranger things. So if you're into stranger things, he said he couldn't tell me what's happening, but that like, this next season is going to like blow your socks off and like completely flip everything around. So get that's ready for cool. That. Yeah. Hard I'm on. excited to see what that's going to I mean, that series needs a serious kick in the ass. So good. Yeah. It was the, <laughs> season one. So good. Season two, still pretty damn yeah. good. Season three. Eh. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there's, a, there's a severe decline. You could fucking put a pair of skis on and zip right down if you wanted to. <laughs> as far as quality goes. <laughs> yeah, Leland's watched it three oh. times. Oh my no, no. You know what? I remember watching. I remember watching season one. It was a day I called in sick when I wasn't really sick. It was beautiful, gorgeous day out. I'm sitting on my couch watching Stranger Things, catching Pokemon that showed up in my living room on Pokemon Go. It was a great day. <laughs> Hashtag like, 2016. <laughs> right? Exactly. Hey, Pokemon Go is still going strong. And to this day, if you want a Pokemon Go, get out there. It's more popular than ever. Get out there. Get outside. Take some fresh air. Catch some Pokemon. <laughs> Fight at your local gym. <laughs> <laughs> It's a great COVID activity, actually. Yeah. Not a paid sponsorship from Pokemon Go. <laughs> <laughs> we promise. Oh, man, oh, man. Well, okay, what do you think, Mo? Is it end of show stuff? Yeah, let's let's uh, dive into it. Uh, I think we've said all we can say about Dune. If you're at all into sci-fi, go see it. Leland's going to go see it. Jeremy and I unequivocally recommend it. And, uh, yeah, give it a shot. Support sci-fi. So yeah, end of show stuff. Uh, well, Jeremy, why don't you remind us who you are, and I don't know if there's something you want to plug. You have a BGG page that maybe you want to plug, or? Uh, yeah, sure. You can find my game on, on BGG or on Facebook. It's just Wizard Thieves. Um, it's pretty pretty easy to find. I do have copies available if anybody wants uh, a copy. And if you happen to be local, especially in Vancouver, that makes it easy. Um, if you like speed games and that kind of like sort of parlor style gameplay it's not a super thinky game it's very like skill based um, very much about like the speed of your hand kind of deal but um a lot of people seem to like it i i obviously enjoy it i wouldn't make a game that i didn't like so uh <laughs> yeah you can check that out other things that i would just like yeah just recommendations would be my favorite board game adrenaline adrenaline is awesome nice. really cool like doom uh unreal tournament style yeah, like yeah, arena yeah. shooter yeah. but in a board game 
super great. Have it's you cool. played it before? I haven't played it. It's on my list of wants to play. It's very. It is. Oh, very okay. Cool. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, I got that one for my birthday. Like I don't know when it came out, like three years ago or four years ago or whatever. Awesome. Probably top of my list still. Uh, check that out. And then uh, Adam's Apple Games is a uh, one of the smaller publishers that does stuff on Kickstarter. I'm working with him on my next title. So. Whenever that comes out, it'll be on his website. It'll be on Kickstarter, all that kind of stuff. Nice. Um, we haven't exactly figured out a name for it yet, but um, it'll it'll be like a, a sort of Spyro the Dragon inspired game where uh. you fly around through all these these colored rings and collect rings and that kind of thing. So another fantasy game um, that'll be coming out in a little while. And then yeah, check out Talon Strikes. Like I really feel strongly about about that company. Uh, you know, they were another another company that I discovered while pitching stuff, and um, you know, I just like I feel like companies like that, you know, they they, they deserve more attention. Their games are are cool, and they uh, they don't see it just because they don't have the marketing budget, and they're working on too many too many projects, too many games that they're developing all at once to like bother with it. So right, cool. I like it. Awesome. Well, our website is ttpopcast.com, the T-Hud Popcast on Facebook, TT Popcast on Instagram. You'll find all our show notes uh, on the website, uh, full links to the, the uh, what was that, the geek list of the Kickstarters. I'm uh, on Twitter, Leland underscore Steel, and that's who I've been. And I've been Moby. And I've been Jeremy. Take care, listener. Thanks, listener. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.